Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's back with money with Gabby Dunn Hello losers, it's Gabby Dunn Back in your feeds and still Uh, yeah, bad with money Fellow Deadbeats, welcome back to Bad With Money. It is season two, and I am so excited to kick off the second season because I really think you're going to love this first episode. It's about student loans. And like the rest of this season, it features a lot of me yelling at my guests about how this podcast is basically turning me into a socialist. But we will get there. Before we do, I want to take a minute to talk about how we're approaching this season because so many of you took the time to send your thoughts on how we can do a better job of exploring the topics and issues around money that hit closest to your home. The main thing you're going to notice about this season is that it's going to be shorter than the first season. We're going to do 12 longer episodes instead of 24 shorter ones. And that's because we want to make sure that each one is more focused and wide-ranging and journalistic. Instead of exploring the particular journey of one guest, like we did on a lot of the shows last season, we're going to treat these episodes more like our Banks Are Evil episode, where I took a big confusing issue, told you all just how little I know about it, despite the fact that it influences basically everything in my life, and then brought on some experts to help me understand how the system works, why it's horrible and fucked up, and what we can do to change it. And along the way, we're going to keep incorporating your emails and voice memos like we did in the last episode. So please keep sending them to me at badwithmoney at slate.com. In general this season, you can expect to hear much less of a focus on the entertainment industry. Yeah, we heard you loud and clear on that. But there's going to be much more of a focus on how money corrupts and confuses pretty much everything. 
And whereas last season was a lot about me learning about my own ignorance about money, I like to call last season finances and feelings. These new episodes are going to turn the spotlight on the system as a whole. And still on me and my ignorance around money. (laughs) It wouldn't be bad with money if I didn't sound like a dum-dum at least two or three times an episode. If you think I'm a dumpster fire, wait until you hear about things like, I don't know, the fact that credit scores systematically reinforce heinous gender stereotypes or that the next financial crisis is going to be student loans. That's coming up. So basically, the theme of season two is, oh fuck, it is worse than we all thought. So please buckle up and follow me, your trusty train wreck, Gabby Dunn, because it's time to figure out why these things that seem so evil and confusing actually are evil and confusing. I'm mad as hell, y'all, and I'm not going to fake it anymore. So as I mentioned before the break, today's show is about student loans. And that's partially because I can confidently say from my own experience that student loans are the worst. I currently have around $30,000 in them, as does my little sister. She went to a state school. I went to a private college. And we are both screwed. In November, due to the ongoing struggle that is my parents' financial situation, to be slightly vague about that, I took on paying back my own loans. And I asked my mom, would it be helpful if I paid my own student loans? And she said yes. Which, by the way, up until like last year, I had no idea what my student loans were. I had no idea whether they were private or federal. I didn't even know how to log on to the student loan website. I didn't know what Nelnet or Navient even were. Um... And my mom was doing all that. And my parents, you know, it's very typical of them to sort of try to hide any kind of debt situation from me. Thank you for calling Nelnet, your student loan servicer. Thank you for calling Nelnet. My name is Brandy. Can I please have your first and last name and date of birth? Gabrielle Dunn. And it's... All right. How can I help you? Um, I get these emails that say that my payments are past due, and I was just wondering if that mattered at all, like if there was a record of that or if there were problems with not paying it on the exact date. Um, Say if you were applying for a forgiveness that requires on-time payments, that could affect something, like like the forgiveness. Oh, so my mom, who pays it, says, oh, don't worry about those emails. I'll pay it in a week. But I'm worried, like, so the forgiveness would be a problem? Like, I couldn't get that now because of the late payments? Correct, because it wasn't paid on the due date. Sorry to to ask, just because I'm trying to prove a point to my mom uh, about being late. Did you you have to pay student loans? Me? I had one, but it was very small. And I actually paid it in full. Oh, that's great. What is mine? Just wondering. What is this? What is my account? Your balance as of today is $4,941.98. Okay. My school costs a lot of money, so the 4000 loan there is not the only loan. So now I'm like, okay, where are the other loans? Interesting. So yeah, that call was March of last year, and that's why I've taken over my student loans. So now that that's added to what I pay every month is, uh, you know... $200 there, $200 there, $200 there to, to pay student loans. Two of my loans are $2,000 and one is 26000 I think. So yeah, it adds up to about $30,000. Um, and, you know, I had to look and read about interest and all this. I mean, at 28, I was just learning about a decision I made at 18. 
So we're also tackling this as the first topic because so many of you wrote to me with similar stories about how difficult a burden your student loans are. And I wanted to share a few of those messages here to sort of set the scene. And here to do that is a very good friend of mine who I wanted to read them for you is Stephanie Frosch, a.k.a. Elo Steph on YouTube. Hello. So a listener, Courtney, writes, I have amassed a great deal of student loan debt to the tune of 60,000-ish. Many accounts in collections, a car loan, I mean, it's totally embarrassing. 2016 ended with my wages being garnished due to a defaulted student loan. So let's just say I'm not proud or happy. I'm stuck in a job that I can't stand, mostly because at $14 an hour, it is one of the highest paying jobs in the area. And companies also aren't huge on diversity around here. Take my wife, for example. A former co-worker put a dead rat in her car and screamed, dyke at her. Totally fun, right? Needless to say, I feel trapped and overwhelmed. A listener, Alana, says, I am currently a graduate student getting a doctoral degree. I came straight into my current program from undergrad. I am lucky enough that my parents can afford to help feed me and keep a roof over my head, but I'm still digging myself into a giant hole of debt. After undergrad, I had $20,000 in debt, and now I don't even know the number because I refuse to read the emails they send me. I won't have to start paying until after I graduate in a couple years, but due to my current loans being unsubsidized, I have another $10 to $20 added to my bill per day in interest. It will take me years upon years to pay off my loans, and my partner is in the same program with an even higher amount of loans to pay off as well. Louisa. Hi, Gabby. I'm Swiss, and here is actually a pretty shameful thing to have debt at all. Most people don't do student loans because the university fees are very low, and a lot of people still pay for the majority of things in cash, with the exception of big purchases. I'm not from a wealthy family, but we never had money problems. I also don't have a credit card because I'm terrified of spending more than I have, and I strictly separate my spendings and savings accounts. I'm aware that I'm in a privileged position more now than before. I think when I hear you talk about privilege, I realize that's really what I have. I don't have to worry about money, so I just assume most people don't have to worry about it. Listener Ella Saeed said, I am nearly 40 and I work in the tech industry. I make a pretty decent salary, about $80,000, but I live paycheck to paycheck because my minimum payments on my credit card debt add up to $1,500 a month. I left grad school with $80,000 in student debt and I made those payments religiously, but I also felt like I worked all the time and so I should be able to afford nice things, so I bought them on credit cards. The minimum payments have me in this horrible cycle where I can't save anything up. It's really frustrating. So as we've said so many times on this show, it seems really bleak and isolating. And what I'd like to do now is see if we can figure out whether it's possible to improve this situation for anyone. I mean, do we fix it after the fact by trying to figure out ways to pay back our loans? Do we get out ahead of it? It depends on where you are in your life. I'm ready to burn the system to the ground. But first, let's hear some experts out. We're going to start by talking to Kelly Peeler. Kelly's the founder of something called NextGenVest, which she'll explain in the interview. She thinks there's a way for students to head off debt at the pass, which is to say she's got the audacity of hope. Remember that, guys? Remember when we had hope? Okay, let's talk to Kelly. My name is Kelly Peeler. I'm the founder and CEO of NextGenVest.com. We're the money mentor for every student. We help um, Gen Z Uh, navigate their biggest financial decision, student loans, all over text message. Um, And just for reference, uh, about 1.4 million students every year 
uh, overpay for college to the tune of about $2.7 billion because they fill out financial aid forms incorrectly and end up taking out more in student loans than they need to. How bad is the student debt problem? Like, why did this hit you as something to work on? Um, I'm a big believer that the next financial crisis in the U.S. will be rooted in the student loan market, primarily because I studied the history of financial crises at Harvard um, during the last, during the housing crisis. Um, So really kind of got my hands dirty um, researching and studying the last 250 years worth of financial crises. And I was working at J.P. Morgan after college and, you know, working on an investment portfolio that kind of touched student loans or higher education and just saw a lot of the predatory practices that were happening um, that really mirrored similar leading indicators to um, the housing crisis or previous financial crises. So number one, primary leading indicator of a consumer financial crisis is a change in consumer identity. So right now, to be an American and part of the American dream is to go to college. Um, Just like in 2006 and 2007, to be an American, a successful American, was to own, you know, like two homes and like five cars and that type of thing. Home ownership was part of the American dream and identity. And the reason why I say that's important is because once um, some type of economic decision is tied to how you you view your own success, it makes you, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you basically have really weird economic decision-making patterns that basically make absolutely no sense because it's tied to your identity. The second is a mispricing of risk within a particular like asset class. So right now, that's loans. So what are loans tied to? They're tied to the cost of higher education. Um, college costs have gone up a 1,000% in the past 30 years. It's one of the only things that have risen higher than the rate of inflation um, out of, like, anything. Compare that to the mispricing of risk of um, the housing crisis. So everyone thought housing would always go up, which is obviously not true. Um, so there's a mispricing of risk there. And then the last, really, like, the third bucket, our leading indicator, is a lack of broad-based consumer protection. So, like, those forms that I was talking about, they're, you know, it, they. by the way, once you get a form from a college, it doesn't say, like, the interest rate on the loans next to it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even categorize the loans sometimes as saying that you owe the money. It sometimes it's categorized as aid. So that paperwork in itself is, like, really misleading. The paperwork of, of a student taking out loans and not fully understanding what they're signing up for, that's misleading. Compare that to the paperwork of people taking out mortgages and getting adjustable rate mortgages that when the interest rates flew through the roof, people were like, how did this happen? Like, this wasn't in the documentation. And so that's really the the consumer protection side and is really kind of aided by um, lack of regulation is really kind of the third dynamic. So what is the current state of the student loan market right now? $1.4 trillion is owed um, in student loans. So that's more than mortgages and credit cards combined in terms of outstanding debt, which is just like massive. Um, so really those three leading indicators are really troubling because you have people making weird decisions that don't make any economic sense for themselves because it's socialized. And I mean, by the way, that's not like an accident, right? Like <laughs> in marketing, or, excuse me, colleges spend like millions of dollars on marketing to students to say, like, this is the American dream. Look at this really nice campus that you can spend all your time at and, like, wear, you know, like, J. Crew outfits on. Um, it, it's, it's literally selling a dream to students. 
Um, and that's why we say that if you are getting, if you're getting marketed to, you should treat that purchase like you're a consumer, just like you would treat, you would be consumer of like buying clothes, for example. So what are some of the predatory practices? You know, there's tens and tens and tens of thousands of students across the U.S. who are navigating, you know, seven pieces of paperwork, a hundred different, like, you know, financial questions to fill out things like the FAFSA, and they're doing it all by themselves at 18 years old. So just the process in itself is incredibly complex, like the paperwork and all of that. Um, so that's kind of bucket number one. Bucket number two is when a student will get um, financial aid packages from the university. So they get into college, which is great, and they're excited. They'll get a financial aid award letter, which is essentially um, a breakdown of their scholarships. There's grants, there's loans. Um, and the kind of predatory thing in our opinion is that this is all called an award letter. So for a student who's not familiar with how loans work, um, it's really confusing to see loans bucketed as aid. Um, and we deal with a ton of students who think that they don't have to pay loans back because just in the terms of the categorization on the forms, um, which we think is really misleading. So that's kind of bucket number two. And then bucket number three is just like the overwhelming amount of options that students are signing up for and how to service their loans. So um, we deal with a ton of students that like never actually log in to their accounts online to see how much they owe during college. And then they'll mm -hmm. be surprised <laughs> when they graduate to say, oh, you owe $60,000 and here's the interest accumulation. I had no idea. Yeah. Like when I was yep. going to college, I never, I don't know what the paperwork was. I never yep. looked at anything. I didn't know how much anything cost. My parents filled it out nobody sat down to talk to me about how much it was going to cost and there was this big push of like oh I got into this school and your high school kind of pushes you to accept these more yeah. fancier schools so that they right. can say oh we have kids going to Stanford and Harvard and, and yeah. stuff like that and then you feel I mean it's just crazy that it's like asking 18 year olds to pay this much for something and that's never talked about the average college counselor ratio in the U.S. is one college counselor to 500 kids. So imagine if you're, like, shy and, you know, you don't have a great relationship with that one person, um, you're fighting for the attention across 500 kids. Like, you might not even get a meeting with them. So, mm -hmm. you know, we were available at 11 o'clock at night on, like, a Sunday, and so we really push students to understand the, the steps, understand the forms, and actually fully understand what they're signing themselves up, um, up for and make the best decision possible. What are some options that they have that students are not aware of? One is that um, students do not fill out the FAFSA. And the FAFSA is essentially like the main form that uh, allows you to access free federal aid. So meaning money from the government that you do not have to pay back. Um, so this takes the shape of things like Pell Grants. Um, and students won't fill this out for a variety of reasons. One is um, they might think that their families are too wealthy. There's no income cap, so you, you like, have no um, risk of, like, applying and not getting any, so you might as well try. The second reason why they might not apply is just because the forms are so complex. So recently, um, if you saw on the news, the IRS, this, like, tool online that helps you pull in your tax forms is basically deactivated, <laughs> which, like, just makes it even more impossible to, like, hook up your tax forms um, to the FAFSA. And then what else do students not know? They don't know that um, they can actually negotiate their college tuition. So we help um, students write a, and customize appeal letters to 
um, negotiate their financial aid packages. And last spring, we helped students get $260,000 more um, that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. That blew my mind that you can negotiate. Yeah. Your, wait, what? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a guarantee, but you might as well try. And we've had a lot of success with it. And so the process and what it looks like is once you get into a bunch of colleges, you'll get those financial aid packages and you can go to the financial aid office and say things like, hey, you know, my parent lost their job or we have huge medical bills or like I got into a lot of other really great schools um, you know, but I really want to come to yours. Is there any way that you can bump up my financial aid? I, at least as a student um, going into college, like I didn't understand the power dynamic. I thought they had all the yeah. power and I had no power. But it seems like what yeah. you've been talking about is that the student actually has more power than they think. Yeah. And I mean, they should, right? Like if you think about buying a house, and I think I gave you a similar example. If you think about buying a house, you know, you might buy You might pay $200,000 for a house. How much is a college education these days? Around $200,000. So just like you would negotiate the price of a house, you should think about treating your college education like a consumer. Um, a college can certainly rescind acceptance for things like dropping, you know, like if you tank your senior spring in grades or if you get arrested or things like that. But they can't if you just appeal your financial aid package. So um, we really encourage students to, to be consumers of their of their higher education. This is a crazy thing to put on kids. So this is a big thing. Like one of the things that I'm struggling with now in this second season of the podcast is that a lot of it was like about understanding and functioning within the system, but then also coming to this realization that like everything is flawed and terrible. Um, yeah. So yeah. like, yeah. what is your take on that? Cause you're like trying to help these students become financially literate to like navigate their way out of college. But then also like it's, it seems like it's created to, to mess them up. One of the things that we really try to do, whether it's over text message um, or, you know, more broadly in the media is, sort of destigmatize the loneliness and anxiety that students feel when they go through this process. So, um, you know, imagine, I mean, like everyone may be listening to this, being an 18-year-old kid, a little bit hormonal, um, you're super excited to go to college, you've been told that this is what the American dream is, and you're like, wait a second, this crap is really confusing, and you feel like you're stupid. And so what we really try to do is to say, actually, this system is stupid. <laughs> it's designed really not very well. It's actually pretty predatory. So once you kind of remove a little bit of the shame, loneliness, and anxiety for students, then it's like, okay, now that I know that it's kind of a system rigged against me, how can I navigate myself through it? You know, once you sign on the dotted line with loans, you can never default on them, meaning that you can never really escape them. Um, so, you know, you get into a ton of credit card debt, you declare bankruptcy, which basically means like your credit score is ruined, but you can kind of like pass that debt on and move on from it. You cannot do that with student loan debt. It will follow you forever. And what do you, how do you feel about like the whole student loan forgiveness thing that's been going on? Or like, do you think that's reason that's a thing that could happen? I personally do not think that student loan forgiveness will be a huge thing under this administration, right. given like the current you know activities that are going on. Um, I think that there will be a crowding out of the federal market, which basically means that there will be more private loans from banks issued. Um, so I think that there will be less regulation around all this stuff. In those situations, if there's less regulation, that means there's less protection for students. Um, so that means that they need to be even more aware 
and like take ownership of this thing for themselves. Okay, great. I'm going to go scream into a jar. (laughs) More Bad With Money coming up after the break. So Kelly's got a lot of ideas for how students can proactively take control of their financial situation before things get out of hand. But what if you've already made your deal with the devil? What if you've graduated from college, can't find work, or are barely making ends meet, and you're staring down a mountain of loans that you only took out in the first place to avoid being out of work or underemployed by not having a college degree? Eugenia Kim is an organizer with a group called the Angry Alumni Association, and she says a lot of loans are given in bad faith and should be forgiven outright. The Angry Alumni are alums who though we may or may not have student debt ourselves, we are quite frankly a little pissed off that the U.S. government, universities, uh, the higher education sphere just generally let us get to this point in the economy where we have $1.2 trillion in student debt and we can't realistically pay it back. Why is college so expensive? Is the main problem that people keep going to expensive colleges and thinking that that inherently has value? Tuition has risen across the board, regardless of whether or not you're at a public school, whether you went to a private college, uh, even whether you go to a state school. Tuition has risen over 100 percent in the past, like, 20 years, quite frankly. Why do they need that much money? That depends on who you ask. They'll tell you we need to continue to ra- uh, raise tuition to provide more services, uh, get new student centers, provide better um, resources to students, and we need uh, university needs uh, to raise tuition to be financially healthy and stable. Government has continuously cut funding to higher education across the country, both federal government and uh, individual states. Uh, so private, more elite colleges. They're now almost a profit-driven model, right? Because they need, um, instead of being publicly funded, they need to offset that loss in budget with uh, donations from wealthy alumni, wealthy students who will pay full tuition. So um, as a result, they want to bring in more students. They want to bring in wealthy students. And how do they compete for these students, well, they take on big expansion projects. They have shiny new dorms. They build new rec centers. And arguably, I don't know that a shiny new dorm is going to make Biology 101 that much more engaging. I don't necessarily know that having a rock climbing gym available to me, not that I would ever use it, I don't know that that really has a big impact on my cultural studies class. So that's definitely happening on one end of the spectrum. And then there's this other sort of rise of a different kind of college slash university, which is the rise of a for-profit college. And for-profit colleges have only started to rise in this pa- in these past, like, 20 to 30 years. So obviously, like, a lot of this comes from the, the 2016 presidential campaign. I know Occupy started mm-hmm. a lot of stuff, and then, mm-hmm. like, Occupy kind of gave birth to Bernie Sanders in his campaign, and... Um, And there was a lot of debate about whether college should be free or at least heavily subsidized. uh, And people seem to like act like this was some big revolutionary idea. But angry alumni kind of thinks that that higher education is a public benefit. Right. Which I agree with. I think the more educated people are like the less of a class system it it becomes, you Mm -hmm. know. Well, at least for me growing up, the rhetoric that I sort of heard from everyone adults around me was go to college, you'll get a good job. Um, But the idea of 
education being tied up with liberation is something that I think we also need to push as well. But people who went to these fancy schools are still like living at home, unable to find jobs. And then they now they have debt, too. Yeah. And if they're sitting at home, unable to find jobs, other students who come from like for profit colleges, for example, are also going to be sitting at home, unable to find jobs. Yeah. And all the way down the line. And so So it's really about thinking, like, what is the nature of work in this country as it exists now? And that's like Mm -hmm. a, a separate sort of economic question that I think we fundamentally need to address because there are no jobs. Can you explain what's the difference between a public college and a for-profit college? Sure. It's essentially the difference between a for-profit college and any other college is it's simply a tax designation, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Most colleges are 501c3 organizations, meaning they're tax-exempt. They also have nonprofit status. For-profit colleges and universities... Uh, have a different incentive model, which means they exist as completely separate different entities than a normal college, Um, Mm. which is to say they're motivated by profit, they're functioning, um, and making education a business, which is to say Mm. they have to constantly be growing, constantly expanding and bringing in more students and cutting overhead costs. So somebody might say, like, okay, you can help people get an education and also – make a profit off of it. What's what's seemingly wrong with that? It's when you look into various levels of incentive structure that drives people in order to make a successful for-profit college. By definition, it means that you have to cut costs in the very education you're seeking to give to these students and bringing in more and more students and charging higher and higher tuition to them. I guess what's more insidious to me is these schools that are getting like huge donations mm. and then you go and mm-hmm. then you graduate and and then you're like still being asked to donate like you can't find a job you went to this very prestigious school right. and then they're like can you donate money and i'm like i'm pretty sure like you just put in like 500 new basketball hoops but like <laughs> okay yeah so i think there's on one hand on one extreme end there's wealth hoarding going on Looking at these individual colleges and institutions can almost be a mirror for what's happening with individuals in the American economy, right? You have a few schools that have a lot of money, just a lot of money, and it's astronomical amount, quite frankly. And mm-hmm. um, when we say, like, oh, there's no money in higher education, we're not funding schools, why don't we just redistribute some of that? Because Harvard isn't going to spend its billion dollars that it's got (laughs) sitting in its endowment anytime soon. Perhaps, I don't know, the community college down the street where people are trying to get an education. And it's like this normalization of shitting on them, of being like, Mm. oh, you're going, like, I'm from Florida, right? (laughs) Oh, you're going to BCC? Like, gross. Like, I'm I'm going to Vassar or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there was this, like, very clear class system in my high school where like the poor, like oh you're going to FAU like you must be poor like it was nuts yeah and now it's like those and then it's like okay great but you're 18 you have no concept of how much you're going to be paying in student loans later like but everyone pushed this this kind of like doing better than the Joneses thing mm-hmm. you know I'm convinced you're not going for the education you're going for the like alumni network later mm-hmm. you're going for the prestige you're going Ugh. for the connections you're going for the fact that 
And it's all been normalized. Yeah, more rich alumni who are employed at this prestigious university will get me a job at insert X prestigious firm later. Completely untrue. People are like, oh, well, they're going to look at your resume and see that you went to school. Maybe, but probably not. Yeah, I always joke nowadays that, like, colleges have turned into, like, degree-granting factories where they just print out fancy pieces of paper and put a stamp on it that says, some people have respected this institution and we say that this person is um, has gone through our education process and we think that, like, they're pretty cool and you should probably hire them later. You're buying a degree. So there's the lower income people and they see going to college as like, a oh, you know, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. It's really important that I go to college or like, you know, this is my ticket out of this sort of socioeconomic class that I'm in to go to college, which is like great. And also a lot of jobs do require a college degree. But then there, it's just a cycle all over again because they still have to pay debt because they want to go to that college and mm-hmm. the sky, and the financial aid isn't enough. Not only is sometimes financial aid uh, not enough, our new current lovely administration that we have is going to make further cuts. So, like, I got a work-study scholarship when I went to university. And mm-hmm. that itself is like, you know, it you can get that money, but you have to work for it, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so Trump's new budget plan is going to cut a lot of funding that would benefit students who are in work-study programs like I was. And so that in itself is still, like... Well, I have to work to get this scholarship to get, begin with. Yeah, you can't just go to school. Yeah. You have to go to school. I had to, yeah, I was on a, an academic scholarship, which meant I had double the course load mm. of my other. So, like, 30 of us in my class had extra classes and extra, like, papers to write and stuff to go to school on top of, like, whatever else. Right, which is to say that for low-income folks who the only way that they can go to college is by getting these scholarships, they have to jump through additional hoops to get the same education of their peers who um, are lucky enough to be able to, to... To not need it, right? To not need those things. Yeah. That's great. Like, if you're can, if you rich and you can just afford to come here, like, you should, do, you should also do less work. <laughs> yeah. What prompted the shift to not-for-profit private and public colleges being treated like corporate institutions? Sure. So, technically, they're not driven by profit, right? So, they have to get sneaky about it. When you measure the financial health of um, an institution, specifically universities, like you'd probably look to the, the endowment as one of the first sort of indicators of like a, a financially healthy college. Um, the bigger of an endowment you have, the bigger cushion you have, the more financially stable you are. So the people who are managing universities' endowments is usually, depending on if it's public or private, a board of directors or a board of trustees. But ultimately, you have people who are oftentimes not a part of the university and are usually very wealthy um, individuals, oftentimes tied to the financial sector because they purportedly have expertise on how to best manage a university's financial health, right? And so as a result, when the U.S. economy is becoming more and more financialized, universities also follow this trend and as a result have entered into sometimes problematic deals with various uh, financial institutions, big banks, hedge funds. They invest their endowment, usually a proportion of their endowment, uh, into various investments. And sometimes those deals can be good for the financial health of the university um, and sometimes they can be bad. 
sometimes there's an asymmetry of information in which universities are being taken advantage of by financiers and large banks. Sometimes. Oh, fun. Yeah. Sometimes, though, there are individuals on the board of trustees sometimes who you can point to and say, like, also happen to work for big banks themselves or various agencies. I'm about to throw (laughs) my headset. Are you kidding me? Oftentimes, this isn't for all universities, but I'm just saying, if you take a look. At what point are the students important? I'm just curious. (laughs) Like, at what point is it a school about teaching students? When you look at the actual sort of like admissions booklet that you'd get technically all the time, right? This shiny pamphlet that you get in the mail for like recruiting new students. I remember going to a ton of like recruitment fairs and things like that. And all the admissions agents would sort of come up and tell me like, oh, look at how much we care about our students. We've got XYZ programs and we really cater to your individual need. And that, I mean, for... $50,000 a year, yeah, you better be doing that sort of thing. But why do I have to pay $50,000 a year? I mean, does it make sense? Does Bernie's whole thing about forgiveness make, is that like a practical thing? I think it could really be a practical thing. Especially. Where's the money come from, though? So, actually. (laughs) It comes from, like, Melania moving into the goddamn (laughs) White House. (laughs) But also, the whole, like, where does the money come from question? Nobody asked that question when. Um, there's a national security crisis. Nobody asks that question when it's time to go to war. We just say, like, Mm -hmm. we'll figure that out later. Like, this is something that needs to happen now, and we can find the money and finance things later. We were fine for every major war that we've been in thus far. And nobody asked along along the way before we went to Iraq, like, wait, hold on. Where are we going to get the money from? This was great and interesting and... um kills me uh (laughs) thank you so thank Thank you so much for coming on and allowing me to yell at you (laughs) anytime anytime seriously (laughs) so the last thing i want to talk about on the show today is the perceived value of a college education All through high school, going to college is held up as this beacon of promise. If you can just do well enough to get in, your whole life will change in ways you can't even imagine, and you'll put yourself in a position to have a rewarding future, literally and figuratively. But as many of you who wrote in are well aware, that's not how it works. Even if you go to a big, fancy school, you're not guaranteed a job. And the main reason for the disconnect between what college is supposed to be and what it actually is, is money. You get out of school and all the idealized visions of your future you've spent the last four years cultivating gets washed away in a tidal wave of rent payments, or in my case, lack thereof, resulting in fun things like panic attacks or tearful phone calls to your parents or to debt collectors, and as I've told you before, pawning of my family heirlooms. My guest for this segment is Josh Radner. You probably know Josh from his work as Ted on How I Met Your Mother, or if you're a nerd, on the PBS historical drama Mercy Street. Josh also writes and directs films and plays music, and he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say about the liberal arts, as evidenced in his 2012 film called Liberal Arts. I should point out that he and I don't agree on everything, but we had a great conversation on the heels of Trump's potential cutting of the National Endowment of the Arts, and he's very insightful when it comes to the role that college plays in our cultural subconscious. You actually, like, have a movie called Liberal Arts? Yeah, I do. Uh, (laughs) And so there's a part that Sam... Um, was playing for me earlier where you're talking about 
the investment of getting a liberal arts education. I think one of the things I love the most about being here was the feeling that anything was possible. Just infinite choices ahead of you. you. You get out of school and anything could happen. And then you do get out and life happens, you know, decisions get made and then all those many choices you had in front of you are no longer really there. At a certain point you just gotta go, oh, I guess this is how it's going down. And there's just something a little depressing about that. Well, don't you think you're romanticizing youth a bit much? You know, because it's, it's just as hard and annoying to be young as it is to be old, I'm assuming. Not that you're old, because, you know, you're not. Look, I, I, I get the whole we're all equal argument, and it's kind of true, but it's also kind of not true. Like, okay, I feel different now than I felt when I was here, and I hate to break this to you, but so will you. So you're saying things suck? I should prepare myself for suckiness? No. A liberal arts education solves all your problems. Thank God. It's worth every penny. <laughs> Is that like reflecting on your own feelings about post No, that, that wasn't exactly. I mean, I do have a dig where um, Zibby asks Jesse, my character, you know, what did you major in? And, and my character said um, history with a uh, minor in English or philosophy. And he says, just to make sure I was fully unemployable. So there's a kind of self-aware yeah. idea that like, yeah, 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 this is, this is the joke. And yet um, the, the thing that he's talking about, it's actually a bigger idea than the utility of a, of a liberal arts degree. It's more, it's more this idea that um, when you step out into the world, out of, you know, you kind of leave the, the halls of, of academia, mm-hmm. it feels like anything could happen, like, like any, it could go any way. But the more choices you make, your path gets a little more solidified. The grooves get a little deeper. Mm-hmm. And, you, and things narrow. Possibility narrows. Your options just narrow. And there was a sadness to me in giving up the space of all possibility for mm-hmm. um, definite decisions and um, conclusive things happening. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was, I, I call it, a, you know, there's this kind of sad narrowing that happens. But I think that it doesn't matter. Uh, you don't have to be in the arts for that to happen. I mean... Everyone has a version of that, I think. You know, youth is both maddening and exciting because of the same reason, you know, that anything could happen. So Yeah, and then you have little disappointments. You have little disappointments. You have losses along the way. You have small triumphs. You want it to be moving yeah. faster. Then it starts moving faster, and you're like, whoa, whoa, slow down. I mean, you can't win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Um, well, so wait, what did you major in at Kenyon? I ended up being a drama major, but it was a very broad... Uh, I, I mean, I took... I actually got most of my drama credits off campus at a theater program I did uh, my junior year. Um, and my, my drama credits at Kenyon were much more academic, you know, history of theater, 17th and 18th century theater. And then mm-hmm. I just took broadly across, um, you know, I got my one science credit because I'm not a science guy. Um, yeah. And then I mostly took all the stuff we're making fun of. You know, I took history and philosophy. And Were you worried about graduating? Or like what you were going to do. Oh, I thought you meant if I was going to graduate. I was like, no, no, no. no. Okay. Um, <clears throat> was I worried about? N- no, I, I had a really strong um, sense of where I was headed. I, I knew I wanted to. Um, I had this really strong sense I wanted to go to NYU in particular. I had met a number of uh, actors from that program and they said to me, you're, you're the right vibe for that school. I think that they would like you there. And for some reason, I just got it in my head like I'm going to NYU. And if I didn't get into NYU... 
I had this kind of half-baked idea that I would just move to New York and see what happened. But I did get in, so I never had to go down that route. A lot of people that listen right in and they talk about going to grad school and stuff and how it's like another, you know, another investment in terms of money stuff and like another, you know, how college is this big emotional and intellectual commitment. And then it's also this financial investment. And then you get out of gra- like the next part, grad school, and you're st- and you're like, OK, now I spent like double the yeah. money like this better work out. Yeah, I do know a lot of people um, who didn't go to college and and just started taking acting classes in New York or L.A. and mm-hmm. are terrific and really smart, um, nimble, amazing artists. Um, I don't think you need to go to film school to um, to be a, a filmmaker, especially now that you can make a film on your phone. Right. So I think that I think that the the barriers to entries, especially in the arts. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. You don't need a degree. You don't need a postgraduate degree to work in show business. But So why do you have one? Well, I actually had one in a way to um, appease my very nervous father. Because my dad was, you know, they, my parents, like, their, I think their overriding goal was me not being homeless. So I yeah. think that the idea that I would get an MFA and could teach and maybe even teach at the college level gave my dad oh. a certain level of comfort because I was always trying to slightly trick him into letting me ride this acting thing out a little bit longer than he yeah. was comfortable with. Um, and every time I would, you know, reach another kind of plateau, it would, he'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe this thing is still happening. So in some ways, I think I even wanting to declare a drama major at Kenyon, I, I use that as a negotiating tactic. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go to grad school and, uh, and I'll be able to teach if it doesn't if, if the other stuff doesn't work out. Were you paying off loans when you finally like got something? No, you... and that's a that's a that's a huge um, kind of gift. Like my my family, my grandfather sold cars for most of you know uh, mm-hmm. like thirty or forty years. Um, he was a Chevrolet, you know, he sold Chevrolets in, in Cleveland. And my father, my father actually went to Kenyon also. And when my dad was in his mid to late thirties, maybe late thirties, he was already a partner at his law firm. My grandfather came over one day. He lived in Cleveland, but we lived in Columbus. And he came over one day and he said, uh, well, I finally paid off your last college loan today. And my father had no idea that my grandfather was paying off loans for, you know, 20 years. And it was this, it, it kind of took on this mythic status in my family, that story, just yeah. that my grandfather um, just quietly, you know, decided. And my father didn't even want to go to Kenyon, um, but my grandfather came and looked at it and he said, no, this is what a college should look like. And in fact, I think my dad didn't even have the grades to get in there. My grandfather kind of talked his way in there. He, I think he had cigars with the admissions officer or something, the dean of admissions. And the next thing, my dad was the last person accepted in the class um, and then ended up doing really well there. But, um, I, you know, my the deal in my family was the longer, as long as you wanted to stay in school, that my parents would pay for it. So I was in the very, very, very fortunate not to be taken for granted position of leaving NYU without debt. And I think that leaving without debt did allow me to walk into audition rooms with a slightly less burdened feeling, you know? Yeah, with um, the less of a desperation. Yeah, yeah. Because there were classmates of mine leaving with 70, 80, 100 grand uh, in debt, you know, also combined with some undergrad debt. And, um, you know, that kept them up at night. You know, it's the j- first joke that people make often with, um, with, cu- with like, 
people complaining about student loans, right? As they go, oh, what do you do? You study English? You study theater? Like, oh, I got a theater degree. You know, like that's the first easy joke to make right. in terms of like you didn't get, you know, you didn't study. You should have studied engineering. You should have studied something useful. But I think that's like a false premise too, because those kids are also not. Like those kids are right, also not and then let's jobs. say you know, don't they say that people switch jobs and careers something like five to eight times throughout their life? So mm-hmm. someone who studies engineering isn't necessarily going to be an engineer. But what are the qualities that one might be looking for in terms of hiring? You know, um, an English major uh, is capable of critical thinking. They're capable of creative thinking. They're capable of uh, articulating problems. They're capable of. Um, you know, having a conversation, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. being able to be open to new ideas. I mean, all these things that the humanities and the arts teach us are incredibly applicable in the job market, I think. Yeah, when I did improv in New York, half the people in the classes were like business people trying to learn how to better communicate or talk, oh, yeah. you know, through improv. I just listened to this unbelievably great. Um, do you ever listen to On Being with Krista Tippett? The no. Podcast? It's terrific. It's one of my favorite podcasts. Um my second favorite. I get it. Years. You're trying. You're trying to get on every podcast. <laughs> yeah, I am. It's true. Um, I wonder if there's a record. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I just listened to her uh, interview. I think it was from a couple years ago, but with the poet David White, um, and it's unbelievable. <laughs> like every, I was. You know, I want to write everything he said down because he's <laughs> a great mind. But he was asked to um, start lecturing to or teaching to corporate America, and a guy who approached him to come into the corporate world had heard him speak and heard him read some of his poems. And he said something like, the language that we have in corporate America is too small for the territory we're currently covering. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're going into people's lives and they're invading their social systems and our language is kind of constricted and, and asphyxiated and it's just too small. So we need, your language is, is what we need to discuss what we're doing and maybe even reorient what we're doing. Um, and and that's fascinating. Like corporate America is reaching out to a poet to mm-hmm. reflect back to them, like say, what are we doing here? There's this idea in a, in this free market economy that like everything has to have a market based utility, like everything. Mm-hmm. And if it's not measurable somehow, that it's worthless. And it's really hard to measure the value of like what a drama teacher gave you by having you step into a different version of yourself as a as a high school student, as a 16 year old. Mm-hmm. It's 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 hard to mark that. But mm-hmm. the high schooler will tell you something changed in me, something shifted in me, my sense of myself, my sense of possibility, my, my, uh, you know, the horizon line got like bigger for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't measure that in a standardized test, but it's certainly valuable. You know, I don't, I just wonder like, what is the end game in the kind of arts, fun, you know, slashing world where it's like, we should just be these kind of automaton, you know, good test takers who just produce, 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 produce. It just feels yes. brutal to me. It feels like this brutal <laughs> vision of a society that's like absent any poetry. You said there was another dig in your movie Liberal Arts, but there's also the dig at the end of that conversation where you're like, oh, a liberal arts education solves all your problems. And then you're like worth every penny. And that kind of has a lot to do with this episode. Um, was that just a little? I think it was more of an emotional thing that he um had the best education money could buy and he was still kind of spinning his wheels and lost at 35 mm-hmm. you know this, this this thing that um well if i have the degree from the fancy school shouldn't i shouldn't i know more what's going on shouldn't i know myself a little bit better but i find you know who knows themselves at 18 or 22 
it's it's this kind of thing where he's poking fun at the you know he's doing a little cost benefit analysis like <laughs> like I don't know who I am and I'm confused I don't even like my career was it was it worth it was all this stuff worth it but I I think you know that movie is really on some level a very robust defense of a liberal liberal arts education and it also points to its limits you know that mm. that a life lived entirely in the mind you know kind of academically inclined you're going to be missing a lot you know that mm-hmm. there's so much about life that has to do with heartbreak and emotion and disappointment grief joy you know all these things that you can read about but you don't understand them entirely until you um you've lived a little bit more and the way you live is by going out and you know getting dinged up a little bit um mm-hmm. and so many of us are allergic to pain but i found that like pain and heartbreak and loss and all those things are really terrific teachers if we let them do their work One of the coolest things that I read recently is from our our former vice president's wife, Jill Biden. She said that community college is the most untapped resource in our country right now. And I remember when I was going to school, choosing schools, I was so snobby about it for no reason, for no reason. And it's because I fell victim to, I think, what is like a marketing campaign. You know, that this is better than this and this school is makes you a better person than this. And that's some classist bullshit that I am paying for now. <laughs> I think a lot of young people now, my guess is that a lot of high school kids now are sort of waking up to the reality of not wanting to have debt and are seeing what happened to the people that graduated. Like just, you know, I when did I graduate? I went to college 10 years ago. Oh, my God. Can we strike that from the record? (laughs) You'll still listen to the show if I'm old, right? So how am I going to pay my loans back? Slowly. Slowly and in small increments until uh, I die. Thank you for listening to the first episode of season two of bad with money if you like the show please rate and review us in itunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money this is the show for them also tell your friends who've successfully exploited a broken system to enrich themselves on the backs of hopeful young minds i guess that means they're good with money oh god hashtag resist we are part of the panoply network our producer is sam dingman laura mayer is panoply's director of production andy bowers is our chief content officer original music for our show is composed by zach sherwin mike kaplan and jack dolgen Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently, so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.